This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. The night sky for February 2018. Well, to be frank, we haven't had all that many clear nights this winter. I hope it's a bit better this February. But if it is, after sunset, looking a little bit to the west of south, we have that wonderful skyscape. Orion the hunter, Taurus the bull, Gemini the heavenly twins, and Canis Major with Sirius below. So taking the three stars of Orion's belt, down to the left you come to Sirius, the brightest star in the northern hemisphere. Up to the right you come to Aldebaran, a red giant star which lies between us and the Hyades cluster. And beyond the Hyades is that beautiful open cluster, the Pleiades. High above is the yellowish star Capella in the constellation of Auriga. The Milky Way passes through Auriga and there's some very nice open clusters to see with binoculars or a small telescope. Over to the east of south, there's a fairly open area of sky. It has the constellation of Cancer. No really bright stars, but a very nice little open cluster called M44, the Beehive Cluster, or sometimes called Praesipe. And then rising over to the east is that nice constellation of Leo the Lion. I think it's always a bit like the lions in Trafalgar Square on their haunches. Becoming fairly high overhead is the constellation of Ursa Major, with, of course, the major asterism, the plough. The right-hand stars, Dupe and Merak, point towards Polaris, the pole star, very close to the North Celestial Pole. Well, what about the planets this month? Well, Jupiter, it rises around 2 a.m. at the beginning of the month and just before midnight by month's end. Initially, it has a 36 arc second disc, shining at magnitude minus 2. But as the month progresses, its apparent diameter increases to 39 arc seconds and it brightens to magnitude minus 2.2. Jupiter will transit that's due south, before dawn, and so will enable the giant planet to be seen with the equatorial bands, sometimes the great, but reducing in size, red spot, and up to four of its Galilean moons visible in a small telescope. Sadly, Jupiter, which lies in Libra this month, is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic and will only have an elevation of about 20 degrees when crossing the meridian. Atmospheric dispersion will thus hinder our view, and it might be worth considering purchasing the ZWO Atmospheric Dispersion Corrector, costing a bit over £100, to counteract its effects. Well, Saturn is now at the start of its new apparition, rises at around 5am at the start of the month, and just after 3am at its end. With an angular size of 15.5 arc seconds, it climbs higher before dawn and becomes easier to spot as the month progresses. Its brightness remains at about plus 0.6 magnitudes. The rings were at their widest a few months ago and still at 26 degrees to the line of sight, well open. Saturn, 
lying in Sagittarius, is just three degrees above the topmost star of the teapot. Sadly, even when at opposition later this year, it will only reach an elevation of just over 15 degrees above the horizon as it crosses the meridian. And again, like Jupiter, an atmospheric dispersion corrector could be a very good device to help counteract the effects of the atmosphere, particularly if you're doing some astrophotography. Now, Mercury. Mercury passes through superior conjunction, that's between us and the Sun, on the 17th of February. So it will be lost in the Sun's glare until the very end of the month, when it might just be glimpsed after sunset, with its five arc second disc having an unusually bright magnitude of minus 1.5. You may need to use binoculars, but please do not use them to search for Mercury until the Sun has set. Well, Mars starts the month moving quickly eastwards in Scorpius, close to Beta Scorpii, but it moves into Ophiuchus on the 8th of the month. Now, a morning object at the start of its new apparition, it rises four hours or so earlier than the sun. During the month, Mars has a magnitude which increases from plus 1.2 to plus 0.8, and an angular size of 5.6, increasing to 6.6 arc seconds. So you can't really expect to see any details on its, I call it, salmon pink surface. Again, it's very low. It will only reach an elevation of about 14 degrees before dawn at the start of the month, and just 12 degrees by month's end. Well, Venus passed through Superior Conjunction, which is on the far side of the Sun, on January the 9th. And so, at the beginning of February, will be lost in the Sun's glare, setting less than half an hour after the Sun. However, by month's end, shining with a magnitude of minus 3.9, it will set around an hour after the Sun, and its 10 arc second disc should be easy to spot 30 minutes or so after sunset. However, you will need a low western horizon, as it will then only have an elevation of 5 degrees, some way to the south of west. Well, we don't have that many highlights this month, to be honest, but let's just run through them. Before dawn on February the 8th, a waning moon lies close to Jupiter, in fact, Mars is quite close too. So if it's clear on the 8th, you can see a waning moon between full moon and last quarter close to, to Jupiter. Down to the left of the pair is Mars, which lies above Antares in Scorpius, both looking a sort of a salmon pink red. If it's clear on the 9th of February before dawn, looking to the south-southeast, Mars at magnitude plus one will be seen to the lower right of a waning crescent moon. Now, on February the 17th, after sunset, a very tough observing challenge. Looking west-southwest after sunset on the 17th, and given a very low western horizon, one might be able to spot Venus at the start of its new evening apparition a very thin crescent moon, just two days after new, will be seen up to its left, and you might be able to spot Earthshine. Again, 
Binoculars may well be needed, but please do not use them before the sun has set. On the evenings of the 23rd and 24th of February, the moon lies in that beautiful skyscape I mentioned before. The moon coming towards first quarter will pass through Taurus and Orion. On the 23rd, it lies close to Aldebaran, which is a red giant star lying between us and the Hyades cluster. And then a day later, on the 24th, it will lie above Orion. I usually give an object or more on the moon to look out for. I quite like looking at the moon, actually, and imaging it. On the nights of the 6th and 22nd of February, the Hyginus Rill lies close to the Terminator. For some time, a debate raged as to whether the craters on the moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. We now know that virtually all were caused by impact, but it is thought that the Hyginus crater that lies at the centre of the Hyginus Rill may well be volcanic in origin. It is an 11 kilometre wide rimless pit, in contrast to impact craters which have raised rims. And its close association with the rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar events. It can be quite easily seen to be surrounded by dark material. It is thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below, so the overlying surface collapsed into it, so forming the crater. Well, let's hope we do get some decent clear nights to have a last lovely views of that beautiful skyscape around the constellation of Orion. And let's head down under from where I come from and we'll listen here to Claire Bretherton tell us about the night sky when you're upside down. Kia ora and welcome to the February Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. The month begins with a total lunar eclipse when the moon moves completely into the Earth's shadow. Whilst the penumbral phase starts shortly before midnight on the night of January the 31st, totality begins at 1.51am on the morning of the 1st of February and lasts until shortly after 3am. Unlike a solar eclipse, which is only visible from a very specific path along the Earth's surface, a lunar eclipse is visible from anywhere on the night side of the planet. Whilst the Earth blocks all direct light from the Sun, some light passes through the Earth's atmosphere and is bent or refracted towards the surface of the Moon. Light with shorter wavelengths towards the blue end of the spectrum is scattered more strongly, so only the redder light gets through, giving the eclipsed Moon a telltale reddish glow. Whilst New Zealand won't see it, some parts of the Southern Hemisphere will also experience a partial solar eclipse this month on the morning of the 16th NZ time. From parts of Chile and Argentina, the moon will cover some 25% of the sun's disk, whilst from Antarctica, around 49% will be covered. Orion is now high in the north after dark, with Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in our nighttime sky, even higher. Below and to the right, and forming a triangle with Sirius and Betelgeuse, is Procyon, the brighter of the two main stars that form the constellation of Canis Minor, Orion's small hunting dog. Procyon is the eighth brightest star in the nighttime sky, 
Unlike Sirius, at nine light years distant, is one of our sun's nearest neighbours at just 11 light years away. Also like Sirius, it is in fact a binary system, with a 1.5 solar mass primary and a faint white dwarf companion. Just over a third of the way between Sirius and Procyon in the constellation of Monoceros is M50, a pretty heart-shaped open cluster of stars visible in binoculars. Around a third of the way from Betelgeuse to Procyon is NGC 2244, a rectangular cluster of stars that is embedded in a faint nebula called the Rosette. Whilst the cluster is visible in binoculars and small telescopes, the nebula is more of a challenge and is best seen in long-exposure photographs. Below Canis Minor sits another pair of stars, Custer and Pollux, marking the heads of Gemini, the twins. Pollux, the higher and brighter of the two stars, is the 17th brightest in our night sky. It is about 35 light-years away from us, whilst Castor is in fact a sextuple star system located 52 light-years from Earth. Nearby to Eta Geminorum, at the foot of the twin of Castor, is the open star cluster M35, covering an area almost the size of the full moon. Under good conditions, it can be seen with the unaided eye as a hazy star, but binoculars or a wide-field telescope will reveal more detail and are the best ways to view this lovely cluster. Next to Gemini is the faint zodiac constellation of Cancer, the Crab. At the centre of Cancer is a lovely open cluster of stars known as M44, Tricepi, the Manger, or the Beehive. At magnitude 3.7, the cluster is visible to the naked eye as a hazy nebula and has been known since ancient times. It was one of the first objects Galileo studied when he turned his telescope to the skies in 1609. Galileo was able to pick out around 40 stars, but today we know that Pricepi contains over 1,000 individual members, with a combined mass of between 500 and 600 times that of the Sun. As one of the closest open star clusters to our solar system, M44 is a great target for binoculars or small telescopes, which will easily reveal a number of individual stars within it. Higher, and to the east of Canis Major, is Puppis, representing the poop deck of the great ship Argo, which we explored last month. Inside Puppis are two lesser-known Messier objects, M46 and M47. Messier 46, also known as NGC 2437, is a rich open cluster at a distance of about 5,500 light-years away. It is estimated to contain around 500 stars, of which around 150 are of magnitude 10 to 13. Estimated to be only 300 million years old, this is a young cluster and a lovely sight in binoculars or a small telescope. Astronomer John Herschel described it in his general catalogue of nebulae and clusters of stars as remarkable cluster, very bright, very rich, very large, involving a planetary nebula. This planetary nebula, located near the cluster's northern edge, is NGC 2438. A planetary nebula is formed when a low or intermediate mass star comes to the end of its life, ejecting its outer layers into space as a glowing shell of ionised gas. Whilst NGC 2438 appears to lie within the cluster, it is probably just a chance line-of-sight effect, as the radial velocities are quite different. NGC 2438 is estimated to lie somewhat closer than M46, at around 2,900 light-years away. Located around 1 degree west is another open cluster, M47. 
The two fit easily within one binocular field of view and are often referred to as sisters. Messier 47 or NGC 2422 has actually been discovered several times. The first was sometime before 1654 by Giovanni Battista Hodierna and then independently by Charles Messier on February the 19th, 1771. William Herschel also independently rediscovered it on February the 4th, 1785, and it was included as GC1594 in John Herschel's General Catalogue of Nebulae and Clusters of Stars, the precursor to Dreyer's new General Catalogue, in 1864. Due to a sign error by Messier, the cluster was considered a lost Messier object for many years, as no cluster could be found at the position of Messier's original coordinates. It wasn't until 1959 that Canadian astronomer T.F. Morris identified that the cluster was in fact NGC 2422 and realised Messier's mistake. M47 lies at a distance of around 1,600 light-years from Earth, with an estimated age of about 78 million years. It is described as a coarse, bright cluster containing around 50 stars scattered over an area around the same size as the full moon in the sky. It is bright enough to be glimpsed with the naked eye under good observing conditions, but best viewed with binoculars or a small telescope. There are a couple of other excellent binocular targets in Puppis, including open cluster NGC 2477, a wonderful rich cluster of over 300 stars described by American astronomer Robert Burnham as probably the finest of the galactic clusters in Puppis, along with its neighbour NGC 2451, both located close to the second magnitude star Zeta Puppis. Also known as Naos, this blue supergiant is one of the hottest, most luminous stars visible to the naked eye. It has a bolometric or total luminosity of at least 500,000 times that of the sun. But with most of its radiation emitted in the ultraviolet, it is visually around 10,000 times brighter. It is also one of the closest stars of its kind to our sun, at a distance of around 1,080 light years. Our evening skies are still bereft of bright planets. Jupiter is the first to rise at around 1am at the start of the month. Mars follows shortly afterwards, and the two are joined by Saturn around 3.30am. You may spot Mercury briefly at the start of February, rising in the dawn twilight around an hour before the sun, but it will soon disappear from view as it heads back towards the sun and into the twilight. By month's end, Jupiter has moved into our evening skies, rising at 11pm. Mars around 12.30am and Saturn by 2am, making a diagonal line down the eastern morning sky. After eight years at Space Place at Carter Observatory and being involved in the Jodcast for almost as long, I'm moving on to a new role in February, and so sadly this will be my last Southern Skies section. It's been a great pleasure bringing you a little taster of our wonderful New Zealand stars over the past few years and some of the amazing stories within them. I wish you clear skies and all the very best from the future. So farewell from me, Claire Bretherton, and the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. <laughs>